SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 52 with guest Alan Hurt. Welcome. Our guest today is Alan Hurt. Alan Hurt's a well-known, high-availability writer and practitioner and a SQL clustering MVP, or a clustering MVP at least. Uh, Welcome, Alan. Thanks, Greg. And so, as I do with everyone, uh, the first time they're on the show, I get you to tell us, how did you ever come to be involved in SQL Server at all? Um, For me, it was actually more straightforward than probably most people. Uh, I was in college, and I actually was interning at uh, Sybase, actually at a company uh, that Sybase ultimately bought. And mm-hmm. so I've been using databases in some form since about 1992. And, uh, you know, after college, I didn't go work for Sybase, but I, I did it for, work for a company doing QA on a database-based uh, application. So I was sort of always, I guess, in my professional life, had something to do with databases in one way or another. Yep. What made you migrate towards high availability as a an area to focus on? I think I've always been more of a platformy, um, I, IT kind of guy overall. Mm-hmm. I never loved programming, and you know, you know what a lot of people do today. For example, like uh, performance tuning doesn't mean I can't do it. It's just not. Hmm. I'm more of a you know back end kind of guy, and admin ops, and it, it sort of fits my need. What really pushed me over the edge actually was, and you know, it, I didn't know it at the time, um, but I had actually played with the Wolfpack stuff, which was the clustering tree. Yep. You know, for those who don't know, the, the stuff that sort of came before Windows got it right. It, 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 <laughs> um, and then there was an incident after I had well after I joined Microsoft and I was working for Microsoft for a while um, with a particular customer where they had really bad availability issues, which sort of brought it all into focus for me and sort of snowballed from there. And that at this point was almost 15 years ago. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, SQL Server 2012, or I think the marketing team there liked us to call it SQL Server 2012, uh, <laughs> basically there are a lot of changes in and around the high availability area. And in general, each version seems to make uh, a big effort towards increasing the availability of the product. Before we get into the main areas of high availability, though, one I do want to tackle uh, is a quick discussion on uh, Windows Server Core and the ability to deploy on that because, again, that's a substantial change in 2012. And just your thoughts around that and uh, info for the folk on what you can and can't do. 
Sure. So for a quick recap of those who don't know what Windows Server Core is, think of your typical Windows box, but without having any kind of user interface. So basically you see either a DOS or a PowerShell prompt, and, well, that's what you get. It, for for most people, that's really scary because most a lot of admins out there, not just SQL Server, haven't seen a command prompt since DOS. I mean, yeah. once kind of we've gone GUI, it, most people haven't looked back. So now we have, in essence, Windows telling us, you know, command line isn't such a bad thing. And it's not. never has been. But, you know, we most of us have gotten so used to using GUI tools like SSMS that the thought of having to type commands on the box is scary. Now, having said that, um, it's something that Windows-type folks or systems-type folks have been asking from Microsoft for a long time, not necessarily DBAs, mind you, because they want something, a Linux-like experience, I guess, or a Unix-like experience uh, for Windows where you can deploy things on a box that doesn't have a GUI. Because if you really think about it, and, and this is where I think people forget where we come from, back in the days of deploying things like Oracle and Sybase on, um, say, Solaris, you didn't always yep. have a GUI. You, I mean, you were configuring things like tnsnames.ora by editing a file. You, you know, So even in the database world, we didn't always have a GUI. And one of the, one of the th things when it started to happen, so let, let me give a little bit of history of how Windows got here. So back in Windows Server 2008, Microsoft introduced uh, Server Core. The problem yep. with it at the time was that it had, really had no .NET support, meaning that outside of basically like Active Directory and a file server, you pretty much weren't putting anything on it. There wasn't a lot of wide adoption, so clearly something had to happen, otherwise it's become really niche. What happened over time is that Microsoft put minimal .NET code in there to be able yep. to run servers. And this is why SQL Server can now actually run on it. But it's not everything. There are certain things, for example, like Engine, that run on there, but you're not going to get, say, SSMS. Yeah. So, and, again, that's totally fine. The, the, the real issue is for folks that I'm finding in adoption uh, is they're scared of not having a GUI when they get on the box. Yeah. I don't know if Actually, that's I suppose we Actually, I suppose what we should ask or discuss, though, is why do they care whether they have a GUI or not? Like, what's the advantage of not having one? Right. So... Good, good, very excellent question. So the one thing that I hear the most, which I think is the least important one, is like, oh, well, I'll get better performance because less stuff is running. So if you think about it, if you don't have a GUI, there's a lot of services that may not run. Um, and people think that this automatically means better performance. It may mean some better performance, but, but to me that's, if you see another 1% or 2%, it's negligible. I don't think yep. you're going to see a night and day between running a SQL Server instance on Server Core versus Full. Now, I, I, I reserve the right to be wrong there, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, oh, look, even, uh, I suppose, the 
temptation to run out of things on the same box is dramatically reduced because there's a lot less things that are run on there anyway. Well, right. Um, and that's, that's really where the big benefits come in are security and really um, better configuration. Now, now, better configuration is relative. Now, let me talk about security for a second. How many times have we heard the stories out there where people are logged on somewhere and they forget what box they're on and they go and issue a command and, you know, that's that? Well, one of the reasons this is better security is because this will get us off our reliance, and I see this all the time at customer sites, of customers feeling the need to log on to a production box just to say run SSMS and look at something, you know. Yeah. I mean, we all know inherently that we should be administering boxes remotely. Mm. And if you have to get on a box and all you see is a DOS prompt, it's going to give you pause, you know, and good for good reason. You know, nobody's just going to go on there, fire something up, and kill it. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you can't kill it remotely, but I think this will get us back to the core of what we've always needed to do from an admin perspective is not be on the production box if you don't have to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, but so you, security there. Yeah. The, um, I was going to say the biggest noise I hear is usually around patching and availability. Yep, yep. and that is actually the biggest one. So I actually did uh, a, a thing for TechEd last year, and I'm actually pulling it up right now, where... I did a test on Windows Server 2008 R2 at the time. I installed a box with the full GUI and then a box just the server core. I installed SQL Server 2012 on there. Um, all stock, nothing weird, no anything additional. And I wanted to see if I ran Windows Update what the differences would be. And... You know, the the funny thing about it, though, is there was actually a pretty significant difference. Now, Microsoft, you know, is, has said in places it could be up to like 70%. Mm, that's a bit high. You know, I was a little bit skeptical. But at the time, what I really saw was anywhere from about a third to almost 40 45% difference in the number of patches that Microsoft recommended for me or said were important. And that's significant. So when most of IT has these days very limited windowing for deploying patches, say a few hours on a weekend, reducing that the number of patches by even just a third could mean significant time savings. You know, and forget the fact that you're not putting additional patches on your box that you probably don't need to begin with. Yeah, it's the whole argument that I don't need to be patching Internet Explorer and things like that and having that cause reboots to the server. I mean, overall, the thing's just going to be up more often. Oh, absolutely. Um, and for me, that's arguably the number one reason to deploy server core. But but the resistance I'm seeing more often than not these days with customers, and it's not just small ones. Small ones I can understand where they're resource constrained and, you know, they have one or two admins both who are probably supposed to be jack-of-all-trades, right? 
it's even in the larger shops where I had one very, very large multinational customer tell me that the reason they're not doing server cores is because their admins would screw up more by typing commands than they would by using a GUI. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate reality because the benefits of, you know, at least a third of the patching savings and, you know, more security should, to me, trump some of that other stuff because it's not that hard to learn. I mean, nobody's asking you to go write complex PowerShell scripts. Although, as an aside, you really should learn PowerShell. And that's something else I want to mention, too, because, um, oh, first of all, let, let's just clarify. We're talking about SQL Server 2012 here. They did yeah. port SQL, uh, server core compatibility to SQL Server 2008 or R, 2008 R2. Yeah. Um, but one of the biggest changes in Windows Server 2012 is that, unlike the previous versions where, yeah, there was some PowerShell stuff, Windows Server 2012 has 2,400-plus commandlets for PowerShell, meaning mm-hmm. that nearly everything that had a DOS equivalent now has a PowerShell equivalent. And that's pretty significant. Yeah. That's good. And so what what do people need to know in terms of installing it? So if we tackle that, so in terms of the installation experience, how is that different for an existing person used to installing SQL Server, what are they going to find when they deploy on core? Well, first of all, you can't use the GUI. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you're used to doing GUI-based installs, I apologize, but that's not going to be your experience. So you have to use SQL Server's command line experience uh, or writing a uh, configuration file and then calling it from setup either way. So if you're used to doing that now, you you will and do it in your current environments even with a GUI, you'll have no issues transitioning to installing on server core. If if you're not used to doing that, there may be a bit of a hiccup, but one thing you can do to sort of get there now is on your GUI-based machines, for example, at the very end of SQL Server Setup, on the confirmation page, you'll notice at the very bottom there's a little line that says your configuration file is here. That you can use, say, as a basis and see how SQL formats it and take the important bits and create your own or just even just modify that. Yeah. So the experience basically is very similar to doing an unattended install um, on the exi- on the current systems. Absolutely. The only real differences are what you can and can't install, which is all clearly laid out in books online. And some some of that may be a bit of trial and error for some folks of getting their scripts right, but once you do, you're, you're pretty much set. Yeah. And so in terms of components, so obviously the database engine is happy. Uh, what about analysis services? Um, the core of analysis services, uh, I believe, should work and have the list in front yep. of me. Um, yeah. But when we get to the so. more esoteric stuff, you know, you, you know, when you're kind of looking at it going, mm, probably not. Well, I would think, for example, in reporting services, the engine's going to run, but the portal isn't, right? That sort of thing. So right. That's that's the sort of... But there's nothing to stop you putting the... The portal's going to be somewhere else, albeit with a separate license. But uh, basically, yeah, it's going to be the, the things that are the back-end engine components are the ones that are going to run on core. Right, and you bring up a very good point, though, because this will also force people to think about their licensing schemes if they're used to minimizing by putting a bunch of stuff on a single box or 
a, mm. a single cluster. This now also makes you rethink your licensing, which I'm sure, as you've heard, um, also changed quite a bit in SQL Server 2012, which has also given a lot of customers quite a bit of pause. Yeah. Uh, look, the other thing I suppose I should mention as well, um, for those that want to try this, obviously they can spin it up in a virtual machine and try it. And the other thing they'll probably be pleasantly surprised about is how quickly Server Core itself installs compared to the other operating system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, in general, um, with the Windows experience for installing the OS has gotten much quicker. But, yeah, installing it is pretty much minutes. You know, we're not talking hours and hours of, you know, going out to dinner and coming back. It's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, the, the other thing I found is that after it was installed, that initial Windows update, uh, that process was, again, so much shorter, where whenever I install an operating system nowadays, it seems like I'm going to be sitting there not so long for the operating system installed, but it's going to be the endless updates that come down after I finish installing it. Exactly. Um, and the one thing that, you know, just the subtle difference between the SQL Server installing experience in general, Server Core and not, on Windows Server 2008 R2, say, versus Windows Server 2012, is that a significant portion, in my experience, of the SQL Server install time on Windows Server 2008 R2 is actually installing .NET 4. Yeah. Whereas on Windows Server 2012... .NET 4.5 is already built into the OS. So you actually, the SQL Server install itself is actually quicker on Windows Server 2012. Hmm. Are there any notable things that you, I will probably do a show separately on this, but notable things from Windows Server 2012 that uh, you think are worth noting at this point? Uh, there are a, a few. Um, a lot of their investments were made for example, in the Hyper-V area. So we can have up to 64 nodes of clustering, which is technically a cluster thing, but it was mainly put in for the Hyper-V folks. They could have, I think it's 4,000 uh, VMs, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's cluster where updating. So uh, Windows can now help you patch your clusters automatically and move things and handle reboots to minimize some of the interference there. SQL Server doesn't directly support it yet with its patching. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they ever do support that, say, for cl patching clustered instances of SQL, which can be mm -hmm. sometimes a bit of a hassle. Um, they've improved things like check disk, where it now can now potentially run in seconds. Um, what else? I mean, there's a, there's a few the, other. I think the other the other big one I was thinking of uh, was SMB three. Yeah. Um, so SMB three will be really interesting for SQL because SQL 2012 also supports deploying your databases on shares. Yeah. So I suppose for those that just not across that, so SMB is the uh, the protocol that's used for basically disk sharing in Windows ever ever since the year dot and Basically, from there, SMB3 uh, basically is dramatically faster. Uh, and the other big thing is that uh, in the case of um, things like SQL Server, we can now use it as a shared disk subsystem instead of necessarily having to use something like iSCSI. Right. Now, but the problem now we have is we're shifting where you, what you need to make available or what you're assuming your 
internal guys can make available for you, you know. Now you need to make sure they're putting on a highly available SMB share that, yeah. you know, can give you the performance you need and your network needs to be rock solid. Um, but, again, those are pretty standard things anyway. But but things that DEA doesn't necessarily think about but is ultimately going to be responsible for if they can't access the files. Yeah. That's great. So, listen, where I then wanted to head a little bit now into is just the general high availability improvements uh, in SQL Server 2012. Sure. And I suppose the uh, the the always-on word has uh, reappeared. Sure. Uh, it, it appeared initially in 2005 to, to describe some of the technologies there, but uh, they're all very much under the always-on banner in this in this version. And so perhaps... What we've had previously, uh, sort of clustering and mirroring, and so maybe if we start with uh, where mirroring has evolved, and uh, then we'll look at where clustering has evolved. Sure. Well, always on also was used for a while for a certification program for storage vendors too for for SQL. Um, mm. So it's had a very storied past. But really, what Microsoft has done in SQL Server 2012 is they have this brand new feature always on availability groups. And the feature is actually availability groups that's not always on. Um, and it sort of takes elements of what we know today as database mirroring and elements of what we know today as failover clustering and essentially combines them in a single feature. It's Actually, that is something we probably should make clear too. Yeah, it's a good point. I hear people refer to it just as always on, but understanding that there are two parts to always on. There's always on availability groups, and always on can refer to failover clustering changes. Well, as well. and depending on who you talk to, the always on moniker, which is a marketing umbrella, may also refers to anything even remotely that has to do with. High availability. High availability, including like Indeed. the DBCC commands that are online, right? Yeah. And we've had debates so, about this on Twitter and in blogs. And even the Microsoft folks I talked to, if you talk to five of them, three of them will have a different opinion. Yeah. So specifically at this point, we're talking about always on availability. Correct. So what Microsoft has done here, this is database level availability. So following on in the tradition of database mirroring here. Now, with database mirroring, we had a few limitations. The feature was introduced in 2005 SP1, and it's worked well for a lot of people. So they didn't want to change it in a way that would make it unfamiliar, right, um, as a lot of things sometimes happen. So one of the benefits of database mirroring is that, say, unlike a log shipping, for example, which is based off the transaction log. You take your point-in-time transaction log backups, copy them elsewhere, and apply them. There's going to be a bigger delta of data, meaning potential larger amounts of data loss in your either high availability or disaster recovery solution. With database mirroring, it's at a per-transaction level. So whether you're doing it synchronously or asynchronously, your secondary server will be a shorter delta or potentially even if, it, if it's synchronous, completely caught up and at the same point as your primary, which is obviously a better scenario than something like log shipping ever provided for us. Yeah. And availability groups continues on with that and takes a lot of the guts of database mirroring. 
But what they've changed is are some of the mechanisms and some of the and enhanced a few things that were more limited. For example, in database mirroring, you could have a single mirror. So you had a primary and you had a secondary and that was it. Now with availability groups, we have the ability to have more than the one-to-one ratio if we want. So we can have one primary replica and up to four secondaries for a total of five which is really nice because another thing they've done in that is one of the biggest gripes most people have with almost every SQL Server availability solution is the ability to use a secondary for, say, read-only purposes. Yeah. And where that stems from is a lot of management types look at it going, so we've got this server sitting here running SQL. It's not doing anything. We want it to do something. Now, let's take licensing out of the the equation for a second and just talk about that. That, I understand because, you know, you're looking at that going, well, it's just sitting here, it's idle. We want to have every server in our farm and our data center be used. I can understand that, but also remember that you're putting this in mainly for an availability solution. So if you hamper that availability solution, then the, the purpose of using that secondary to me makes no sense. Having said that, if you have enough capacity on that secondary, all of a sudden, you know, assuming you can get over the licensing network cost. And by the way, I've also heard people complain about the fact that if you're going to be using a readable second uh, replica with availability groups, that people are all up in arms about licensing. Well, here's, yeah. the, here's the sad reality. This would have been true in any version of SQL if you're using a secondary for reporting, if yeah. you're using log shipping or whatever. whatever. Yeah, where in mirroring, if I had a purely passive uh, partner, then in that case, yeah, the thing is I didn't have a SQL Server license cost, still had Windows license cost, um, but the minute I made it readable via snapshots or something like that, suddenly I had a licensable secondary instead. And so, yeah, that that aspect hasn't changed. So um, one of the, the, the... So the bigger difference here is that with mirroring, as you say, I could only have a single... And people often wanted local high availability and more remote sort of disaster recovery. And so they, at the very lim- minimal, people wanted sort of a local synchronous replica and they wanted a, a remote asynchronous replica. And, and that's probably, to me, the biggest change is that you can do that, plus the ability that you can push out to multiple replicas as well if you want to. Well, that is one bigger change. So, for example, to achieve what you were just talking about, to have like a local synchronous in a, in a non-local asynchronous, but generally like database mirroring plus log shipping. Yeah. And now you can have an all-in-one feature. But there's a couple of other improvements. For example, for the readable secondary, it's near real-time. It's not like, say, database mirroring where you had to create a snapshot and keep recreating snapshots, which are essentially slices of time. Yeah, that was a fairly painful process. I remember we had to set up something that endlessly created snapshots and also cleaned up the old ones when no one was connected to them and then the clients had to look in a table first up to find out what to connect to. So it, it wasn't a trivial thing to have you know, fairly up-to-date uh, readable secondaries on mirroring. So uh, now oh, absolutely it's not. a really easy story. Well, and another big change, and this is sort of where we start to get to bring clustering into the picture. So, so let's get something straight up front. Remember that when we talk about clustering, there are a couple different things. There's Windows Server failover clustering, 
which is what the SQL Server failover clustering feature is built on. And what I'm talking about here in context of an availability group is Windows Server failover clustering. So availability groups is does require that the underlying servers participate on a Windows failover cluster. Now, this doesn't mean that you actually have to cluster SQL itself. You can, but you don't have to. The reason for this is twofold, really. One, if you were using database mirroring in the past and were doing synchronous database mirroring um, and you wanted to have automatic failover, you had something known as the witness. All essentially the witness was was the core mechanism built into Windows Server failover clustering. So what they've essentially done is instead of coding their own, you're now using a standard process in Windows to deal with Quorum. So that's number one. The second benefit of having the Windows failover clustering feature underneath the covers is a brand new functionality called the listener. Um, you might see it referred to in some Microsoft documents as the VNN or virtual network name, um, which is really the actual name of the resource in the cluster, but again, neither here nor there. Now, what the listener is, so those of you familiar with standard SQL Server failover clustering instances know that when you install it, you have to give it a unique name in the domain, and it, that's different than the underlying nodes. But that unique name is what you connect to regardless of what node it's connecting to underneath the covers. The listener is essentially works just like that, where you can create a listener so that regardless of where your availability group sits underneath the covers on whatever server, you connect through this listener and you keep the same name in your connection strings. And that's really huge because if you think about things like database mirroring or log shipping or even, say, replication, you're doing things like creating DNS aliases. You're doing any number of things to abstract that server name change underneath the covers, whereas now we have a standard mechanism built into the feature that allows us to have one way to connect in, even though this is database-level availability, not instance-level availability. Yeah. So I suppose to, to one of the summary here, the thing we're saying is that where mirroring before didn't have a dependency on an underlying clustering in Windows, now we have a dependency from um, always on availability groups in SQL Server. They have a dependency on Windows clustering, Correct. not on SQL Server clustering. But one of the big things they've tackled there is how does the client find the database to connect to and now we have this concept of a virtual name that they connect to which automatically reroutes them to where they need to be connected to rather than the client having to know how to do that. Yep, and you can use it for not only the read-write connections to the primary, but also your read-only connections to a readable secondary. So it literally is a universal type in. Yeah, uh, this, that's actually a really interesting point as well. So uh, where we're saying we have a readable secondary and a client connects to that, it's not only redirecting the people that are connected to the primary, it's how do we redirect the people connected to the secondary as well, and it also takes care of that. Oh, absolutely. Now, I'm, now, now, one thing that I'm sure Greg would agree with me on is having this Windows failover cluster underneath does make the planning a touch more complex than, say, just going and deploying database mirroring. 
Um, but that's all tackleable, um, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, it just, so as, as yeah. you're saying, we don't need a witness anymore. Mm -hmm. So that goes away. However, we need to satisfy the quorum requirements by using clustering. But the problem is, uh, sort of alluding to, not everyone can migrate necessarily to clustering. And yes. uh, we had mirroring before where it was cross-domain mirroring, where people were in uh, had servers in different domains or even unrelated, right. and you could set up mirroring with certificates to do the authentication. Yep. One of the one of the big things you have to think about when going to these availability groups is it all has to be in a domain. Well, not only just the domain, the same domain, it can't be trusted domains. It's got to be, yeah. you know. So SQL Server 2012 fully supports the multi-subnet functionality of Windows, so you can span multiple subnets, no issue. It's just you're absolutely correct. Now we're going to a scenario where everything is domain-based, and that may not work for some people. The other thing yeah. that we should mention, too, is that officially database mirroring is considered deprecated as of SQL 2012. Yeah, so it's still there, it's, uh, but it's not an upgrade blocker. So if you're on mirroring, there will be a solution in 2012 that works for you, but that may or may not be availability groups. Exactly. And the thing is, over time, um, you're going to have to think about what you want to do. Right now, if you look in books online, it says that if you're in standard, consider log shipping. If you're in enterprise, consider availability groups. Um, if you're using standard, obviously log shipping is kind of not like database mirroring. No. Um, I mean, that that's what we had in 2000 in standard. Uh, oh, sorry, not in standard. It was in enterprise, enterprise in yeah. log shipping. But uh, in 2005, yeah, that I thought one of the best things in the box was mirroring in standard edition. And so, yeah, that that is an issue. So, yeah, you're going to have to really think about the feature and its, and its feature and the one thing you are going to have to do, though, is, as Greg said, database mirroring isn't going away tomorrow. I mean, it, SQL Server is generally two releases uh, after it's announced that it, it will probably disappear. So you've got time, depending on your deployment cycles, but don't be complacent either. Now, having said that, just because availability groups isn't in standard doesn't mean that Microsoft won't change their mind and put it in, even if in a limited form, in a future version. It's just that for SQL Server 2012, as of now, that's all there is. I have no insider information that they're going to do to make a change like that. I, but um, if you look at the history, uh, it, it is it is the track record. Yeah, yeah exactly. You say, if you look at the history, features, they've done stuff like that. Yeah, features come in in the higher level additions and then slowly migrate their way down in general. Yeah, because I know a lot of people were up in arms about that, but you know, don't get into panic just yet. Now in Five years, if they haven't done it, I'd say they're probably making a statement. <laughs> yeah. Look, the other thing that we should mention uh, in terms of availability groups, uh, apart from what they'd consider as it, it being an enterprise-ish version of, of mirroring now, uh, the availability groups, the other one is around backups. Actually, there's another one besides backups. Um, mm. Actually, there are three things. So... Besides having usable, readable, uh, near real-time uh, uh, replicas, you can do certain maintenance functions like running DBCCs and making backups, albeit copy-only, full and P-log backups, no differential. Yeah, actually, that's that's worth um, highlighting too, yeah. So the backup options, 
We can do backups on these secondaries. However, it's not full database backups and it's not differential backups. We can do copy backups, which are like a full, except they don't change where we're up to in the logging. And we can also do, but the interesting one is the idea that you can do transaction log backups on these secondaries. Right, and you won't break the, the LSN chain. Um, yeah, so that, there's a single log chain right across all of the the uh, backups that are involved, no matter which server. Right, the only real challenge we have is because backups are considered local, the MSDB information for backup history is not replicated around, so you need to make sure mm -hmm. that you're copying the backups to a central location so if you have to restore, that you can... Um, have all the pieces of the puzzle in the same place. Yeah, what I um, uh, it is one of the challenges is a thing to think about. I think if you're doing backups on a variety of servers, when you go to restore, you need to be thinking long and hard about how am I going to find all those pieces uh, that that need to go into the one spot to be able to restore. Uh, I uh, note also that they've helped you with that with the restore wizard. Uh, now within Management Studio as well. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft has done some really nice things, you know, like the Restore Wizard. Um, for me, that is just really, really terrific. Um, so even the, the average DBA can get some benefit. Like I've written scripts to do that stuff in the past to interrogate my backup yeah. history, and now they have a nice GUI, you know, version of yeah, doing so that. If, if I want to restore to 9.59, exactly which backup files do I need? Yeah, that's that's in, that's gold, having that. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention that's another significant change from database mirroring is that we can have more than one database in an availability group, which, yes. which is actually pretty significant. So how many times have you been um, deployed an application and it doesn't have a single database. It's got two, maybe three um, databases. And the question then becomes, how do I get these over to a DR or HA solution at the same time? Well, with an availability group, assuming those databases all live in the same instance as the primary databases, they can be in the same availability group. Now, there's a caveat here, is that they're not kept in sync together. The, the, the synchronizing mechanisms are at the individual database level, but they can fail over at the same time. Yeah, this is a significant change, isn't it? It's the mirroring was completely unsuitable for multi-database applications, so yep. an app that hits multiple databases. And I've often gone into servers that have, I don't know, 15 databases mirrored, and you'll find nine of them over here and six of them over there and so on. So the, the yeah, you, you you simply don't necessarily end up with them all on the one server at any one point in time. Now, this gives us the ability to, so I suppose where the name availability group comes from is the fact that we're able to give the group itself a name and make it be a group of databases which SQL Server tries to fail them over as a set. And also worth noting that that listener um, that's right, is, is the other part of that same naming, but it's associated with that set as well. Absolutely. And, and, and let's say you have a few different databases. Like it, if you're going to say a certain other instance and that's one of your replicas, you could do it synchronous there, but you can't have everything be synchronous everywhere. So you can make synchronous and asynchronous replica pairs within a single availability group. So... Let's say you have, for example, three instances of SQL, 
A is your primary and B is your main HA, but C is just going to be, let's say, a readable secondary. You can have that readable secondary be instance be asynchronous where your HA one could be synchronous. So that's also kind of nice as well. Yeah. So even though you can have four replicas, we can have up to two of them can be synchronous. Exactly. So there's a lot of flexibility here. Obviously, we're kind of oversimplifying this and make it easy to talk about, but there's a lot that goes into the planning of this. I don't want to oversimplify and make and make it seem like you can just click a wizard and have it be totally done and totally reliable. There's a lot of planning and thinking that goes into this to make sure that that happens. The other one, uh, just before we take a break, the other one I do, I suppose, we need to touch on is licensing. And it's yeah. uh, the thing to keep in mind is that every one of these servers that gets put into use, uh, as we said, becomes a licensable server. And so even though uh, they might look at a piece of hardware and say, hey, I could make this usable and do my backups over here, uh, this could be a very expensive backup device. Well... And again, depending on who you talk to for licensing, they may even give you a a different story. Um, Because really what Greg and I are talking about is Microsoft has made the shift away from per-processor licensing. It is now per-core for Enterprise in SQL Server 2012. Um, There's no CAL licensing for Enterprise Edition in in SQL Server 2012. So if you've got a two-processor machine that has eight cores in each processor, you're looking at 16 core licenses. And while a single license, I think it's 7,500 roughly U.S., thereabouts, um, maybe a little less than that, I forget, or 6,800, I forget. Um, It can add up pretty significantly because how many people are now buying two and four core systems? I mean, they just kind of don't exist. So this is where a lot of people have, sort of as I mentioned earlier, have had a little pause with SQL Server, is that the, the pricing model for some, for some people it may not be a significant, significant difference, and for other people it could be a very big difference, especially if you want to take advantage of things like a readable replica where that server now absolutely needs to be licensed and you're now paying essentially double if it's the same hardware spec. Yeah. And so, it's, yeah, it is something that does need to be considered. So even though it, there is a nicety about being able to move, say, a backup onto another server entirely uh, or some of the DBCC checks and so on, uh, it, 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 you really do have to think long and hard about whether you can justify a license for doing that. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's probably the number one reason I'm hearing a lot of grumblings from some of my clients that for certain solutions going forward, they may actually consider non-SQL Server platforms in the future. Um, now, having said that, I don't see people making a wholesale migration and just dumping SQL Server and no. changing things, but this is sort of something that everybody who's thinking about deploying SQL Ser- Server 2012 needs to really think about because, light, let's face it, in the grand scheme of deploying, Hardware is probably going to be your cheapest expense. Yeah. Licensing and support will be your biggest cost. 
So as a DBA, if you're listening to this, that's not something you're always thinking about. So when you're thinking about feature use in SQL, kind of see where it lays in the the, the cost map because it's going to cost somebody something somewhere. And so you need to really balance that and help your company um, and understand the implications to some degree of doing something like a readable replica. Because ultimately, if they can't use that, they're going to look at you for some other solution to make something happen. Um, but also, what I'm also seeing in terms of, of trends is, is in the enterprise space, it, even though this change is significant, and, and I don't want to underscore the fact that it is, most times, in fact, pretty much every time I've done some calculations, it's still cheaper than an equivalent Oracle solution. It's just that SQL Server is now closer in price to Oracle than it was before. Yeah, indeed. And so anyway, so as we say, licensing is not something uh, you can just kind of ignore in this. This is something you have, have to think about long and hard when you're working out which of the nodes is going to be used in which way. But look, that's, that's a, a good point. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about uh, the failover clustering changes. Sure. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. So welcome back. Uh, first of all, Alan, I'll just get you to, is there life outside SQL Server? Believe it or not, there is. Um... <laughs> So I've always, uh, it, well, really since third, third grade here in the U.S., I don't know what that maps to in Australia, um, but uh, I've I've been playing bass since third grade, and um, so I, 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 music tends to be a fairly significant, um, it's not really a hobby, because I would certainly love to do it for real, um, Yeah. but, you, you know, uh, just other things have conspired. And I look at uh, the day job, which is doing the SQL Server stuff and, and everything that I do, being able to help me pay for the music habit. So Yes, that's it. Yeah, it's a very very often not the other way around. I, uh, I have a shared love of playing bass, and uh, I did play in bands uh, in another life uh, in uh, the 1980s uh, in particular. Um, but, yeah, it's not something I'd want to be using to uh, have a dependency on for an income, shall we say. Well, I mean, it's all about luck, right? You, you know, just like what we do. It's luck that you sometimes get to be able to strike it on your own. Sometimes it's skill. Um, and it's all really about who you know. But I, I've been pretty fortunate over the years. Um, you know, I, I still, when I'm home, for example, although I'm on the road a lot, um, I play in a, a local big band every few weeks uh, mm -hmm. when I'm around. I, I sit in and sub for other bass players when they're out, and other ones. I'm in the midst of recording a new album. Uh, I've, I've done um, a few jazz albums in the past. This one's actually a big band album that I've written and arranged. So, 
yeah, for me, there's definitely life out outside of work. And just as a general rule of thumb, I would say um, people need to have a life outside of work because if it, you let it consume you, then uh, you're really going to be an unhappy person later in life. You're never going to wish that you had spent more time getting the extra 1% of performance out of your database queries. Indeed. Yeah, I think the, the thing, I think it's always important everybody has a passion and uh those sort of passions often yeah, they'll continue long after the work finishes maybe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been lucky in in the sense that I I sort of knew early on that music was always kind of stick with me. But on the other hand, I also knew I needed a steady paying income. So yeah. I tried to find something that I would like, and, and I do like what I do. Uh, but, yeah, I, I know far too many people, and I see them all the time just walking around, that constantly look at their phones on the weekend. You know, it's sort of the new pager, right? You know, you can yeah. get – that's one of the reasons that I, by the way, and everybody thinks I'm nuts, but I don't do email on my phone. Um, yep. I hate texting, so I really don't even do that. Uh, so there are a lot of things I don't do to make sure I have a bit of work-life separation. Yeah. And, and I think that's crucial for a lot of people, too, is setting your boundaries with wherever you work of when is your time versus when is their time. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that... Actually, I, I should mention that uh, I did manage to uh, run, run into Alan and uh, spend a bit of time with him in Melbourne again when you visited recently. And uh, I have to say you were one of the few people who wasn't constantly being pestered by his phone the whole time. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's funny. Um, I've always had this weird mentality. Now, I'm not saying I'm not a gadget guy because, you, you know, yep. it's sort of in my DNA that I, I, I mean – my gadget guy stuff shows up in other ways. It's not necessarily like the latest and greatest phone. Uh, mine's more like music-related stuff or headphones. Or, yep. uh, but having having said that, I'm always constantly amazed when I'm out and about and you see a couple or you see a family um, and they're sitting at a dinner table and they're not talking to each other. They're looking at a phone and I'm thinking – you know, I do technology all day, and sometimes all day, not just 9 to 5, but because of what I do, it's, it can be odd hours. When I'm out and about and doing stuff, the last thing I want to be doing is be tethered to email. And, you, mm. you know, I kind of want to be enjoying myself out there, whether it's a conversation with a friend or a family member, um, my, enjoying my, my surroundings if I'm somewhere that I'm not normally, like, Tokyo or somewhere in Europe yeah. or somewhere in Asia. I mean, if, if I'm worried about my Facebook status or who tweeted, tweeted something, then I think my priorities are a little off. <laughs> Actually, it, it's a, the, the best thing I've seen on that recently. I saw a, a photo where it had uh, four, they, they might have been late teens, uh, sitting at a table at like a restaurant each one of them was on their own phone. None of the four of them were looking at each other or talking to each other. And I thought, oh, that's a, such a pity. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I actually saw that in real life where um, mm. uh, about a year or two ago, I went to a movie with my dad when I was visiting them. And in the scene in the row in front of us, a little to the left, were, I assume, four friends. I mean, it, it looks like they came together. Yeah. They were all on their phones looking down before the movie started, probably talking to each other. 
yeah. but not actually verbally talking to each other. Yes. And, and that boggled my mind. Like they're sitting <laughs> right next to each other, but they're not saying anything. I suppose that's the modern equivalent of people used to joke about the fact that uh, within their house, people would be in different places and they'd just instant message, some form of instant messaging to each other to say, hey, it's time for dinner or something now. But this is the modern equivalent that you can all be sitting around a table and, and uh, texting each other. You know, but but the problem I found, though, with it, and, you know, people are going to say I'm nuts and maybe, you know, it's the get off my lawn old man syndrome. <laughs> but I, I think we've lost a, a touch of civility in it, yeah. you know, and common courtesy. Because I can't tell you how many times people are looking down at, at their phones and walking and running into you or they're driving and yeah. not paying attention. Or all of a sudden you'll see somebody slow down when they're driving. What Now, you, you know, disclaimer here, if your state says you shouldn't be using your phone mm. and driving, don't. Um, but having said that, where you'll be driving and you'll see an immediate slowdown and then you have to either slam on the brakes or as you pass them, you realize they answered a phone call or texting or something. Yeah, I mean it's like people have forgotten all sense of decorum because they're attached to a device. Ah, uh, there you go. So look anyway. All clustering. Right. So now we, I suppose the thing is, if people aren't used to clustering much too, we should make a clear distinction between Windows clustering and SQL Server clustering. Absolutely, and there's one more thing I'm going to bring into a little bit later as it relates to availability groups to clear something up as well. So I did mention this earlier, but if you think of a lot of things in life, like a stack, like, for example, to be able to, to, to walk, you have to crawl first. So to be able to install a clustered instance of SQL Server or an FCI, which is instance-level protection, you need to have clustered windows first. I suppose I should get you to define FCI as well. Sure, that's a failover clustering instance. Yep, that's good, just playing acronym police. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very easy to get into acronym hell with Microsoft very quickly. Yeah. Um, so when you're deploying an FCI of SQL Server, you can't just install it that way. You have to have clustered the underlying servers, which are known as nodes, first in Windows. So it's a stack. You have your hardware, you install Windows, you cluster Windows, and then you can cluster your instance of SQL. So if you think of it that way, it's a much easier concept. Now, a clustered instance of SQL Server needs some form of shared storage. As Greg mentioned earlier with SQL Server 2012, we can now use things like SMB shares. So your shared storage may just be a share somewhere, but it's still the same concept as if you would, say, used a SAM. You know, it's, you're just having it be on a share somewhere. Yeah. So traditionally, these have been fiber channel SCSIs or SANs or or possibly iSCSI. Right. And in the good old days, it was DAS, which is direct attached storage. Yeah. Um, now, here's where I want to make the distinction with availability groups. So we mentioned that availability groups requires a Windows Server failover cluster. This, again, doesn't mean that you have to cluster an instance of SQL Server to participate in an AG, although a clustered FCI can participate. But having said that, the biggest difference between an FCI and an AG in their use of a Windows failover cluster is that an AG has no shared storage requirement whatsoever. So you can have essentially 
a local install of SQL Server on what is a cluster node participating in a Windows failover cluster with no shared storage whatsoever. And that's how an availability group can work. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to make that point because that's one of the biggest points of confusion whenever I teach it, talk about it. And I know uh, when we're talking about it, it's hard to see without a Visio. But trust me when I say that it's not the same with availability groups. It's not the same exact way that you would think of what we're going to be talking about now, which is clustered instances, which <coughs> ha excuse me have this shared storage requirement. And that's one of the benefits and reasons a lot of people are now looking at availability groups over failover clustering instances because it doesn't have a shared storage requirement. Yeah, because things like, for example, where we were talking, I suppose the, the, the main thing to think about is what we're protecting as well. In the case of availability groups, or we're, we're protecting a group of databases. In mirroring, we're protecting a database. In the case of failover clustering, we're talking about protecting the server, but the difference is in terms of the copies of the database. In mirroring or availability groups, each node has its own copy of the database. In the case of clustering, we're talking about a single copy of the data being shared by multiple servers because we're protecting against the server itself failing. Right. And so at that point, you know, it should be pointed out that your data could be a potential single point of failure if you lose your underlying storage, whatever it may be. Yep. Um, and but having said that, that's also just having a single copy is a benefit for sort of some of the reasons that Greg pointed out which means you don't have a copy of your data in every place. So if you've got a, let's say, three terabyte database, that's three terabytes you need to have at every place you have a replica in an availability group, plus whatever backup storage, whatever you need. So your storage costs could be potentially much higher from just a pure space utilization with an availability group than it will be with a, a, a traditional FCI. Yeah. So this is all about trade-offs. Um, but and so in terms of the requirements, so in the in the case of failover clustering for SQL, we need an underlying Windows cluster. Are there any specific requirements around that cluster? Because again, keeping in mind, the thing we're saying is that uh, Windows uh, SQL Server clustering doesn't necessarily support all the things that Windows Server clustering has supported over the years. So with really SQL 2012, that gap has, for the most part, been closed. Like yeah. a good example is um, a geographically dispersed cluster. Some people call it a geocluster, but that's not really the right term. Um, or a multi-subnet failover cluster. You know, in, insert your favorite preferred term here. In Windows Server 2008, Microsoft introduced the way to do that natively. SQL, for the longest time, through SQL Server 2008 R2, required a VLAN or virtual LAN setup to basically be able to do that, whereas now in SQL 2012, we can natively use what's in Windows to span multiple subnets for a cluster. So traditionally, things like that, there was a gap. Now there really isn't. Um, with Windows Server 2012 and 64 node support, Microsoft hasn't come out and said with SQL Server, yay or nay, you can support a 64 node cluster. It's not a hard-coded number in SQL. 
Although I will tell you, you don't want to support a 64-node SQL Server failover cluster. No, indeed. Um, so even if it's possible, it's something I would never, ever recommend unless you like, you're a total masochist. Um, so I can't really think of too many features in Windows Server failover clustering outside of maybe the new cluster we're updating that SQL just yep. for the most part can take advantage of. Yeah, so they've been closing that gap substantially. Yeah, as it, certainly stretch clusters were one one of the core things that was. Uh, but uh, also some of the things around um, uh, we've had over the last few versions, things like uh, majority node sets yep. uh, have appeared and they're supported. So this is where instead of having a shared disk providing the quorum, we've been able, which was a single point of failure, uh, where we've been able to move to just having a vote amongst the nodes and not having to have that. As a, so there's different mechanisms we can use for, for quorum nowadays. Uh, one other one, though, I suppose we should talk about just briefly is disks and mount points. Well, right. So one thing that an FCI requires is that shared storage. And traditionally, SQL Server has required a drive letter that's associated with that. And that drive letter can only be used by a single FCI. So let's say you have a drive F, which maps to... Uh, uh, disk carved out on your back end and you drive G and you have two instances of SQL F goes to one G goes to another and obviously there are only 26 letters in the alphabet yeah, and so this has been a natural limit on the number of instances that we absolutely. could have installed um, so really starting with uh, Windows Server 2008 uh, I forget when, when you know, it's because it, after a while, this stuff, you just do it for a while. You forget when it was introduced. But, <coughs> excuse me, it's been a good few years that SQL has also supported mount points. Now, what a mount point is, is you still have a named drive letter. Uh, but un, but you can make that essentially really small. What you then do is when you carve out your disk on your storage, you don't give it a drive letter, but you essentially attach it to this, named drive letter, it's kind of like a link in programming, right? Like, you're telling, okay, Mr. Drive, um, I'm going to access you via drive F in a folder named Alan, but really underneath the covers, you're a real drive, and I'm just pointing to you. That's a mount point. So you can have many more instances of SQL Server if you use mount points. And it's pretty neat. It works really well. It's not a traditional concept that a lot of DBAs deal with, but I'm seeing more and more usage of it customer sites just because it makes management much easier. Yeah. And so, yeah, look, they're the, probably the main changes there. So we, we still have to have, we have to have a working cluster under the covers. Probably the other big change, I suppose, was 2008 where we got the, uh, the cluster validation tooling. Correct, and actually I was just going to talk about that. Um, so you, we were talking about requirements for clustering. Microsoft's changed a lot over the years. So back in the wonderful old days of, of clustering, where things were much, much harder than they ever are now, um, there, there were these things that were monoliths known as the hardware compatibility list, which became the Windows Server, um, uh, what they call it now, um, compatibility with mm. the, the HCL. And the, uh, but bottom line was that when you're going for a clustered solution of SQL Server or, or Exchange or whatever you were trying to do, 
your entire solution down to like firmware, BIOS, whatever, had to be in these lists. And then if, say, they released a new driver for your HBA card or a new firmware for your storage, the vendor had to test it, recertify with Microsoft, and maintain their own list that you had to now check against. That was a pain for everyone, me as an implementer, because I had to make sure that what they were, the customers buying had all that stuff, because they may not necessarily know. The vendor, because they have to maintain and test all this stuff. And the people just trying to sell you hardware, and, 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 and I mean, just, for everybody, this is a pain. Yeah. And, when and they, mind you, we should highlight that the reason to have that is if you want it to be supportable. Absolutely. Um, and it made supportability a nightmare. Because the first question that Microsoft support asks you is, is your solution on the HDL? And, you know, you have to prove that. Well, Microsoft realized this is a pain not just for them, but for everyone else. In Windows Server 2008, they introduced something called cluster validation. This is a requirement for supportability, to, to, but what it is is before you even cluster Windows, you run this process. And in Windows Server 2008 R2, there's also a PowerShell commandlet for this. Uh, there is a GUI in Windows Server 2008 and later for uh, as well. But basically, it goes through and checks components like disk and network and even down to things like, do these nodes have the same patches? I once was at a customer where I ran validation, and each node had different sets of patches. Yeah. Um, but basically, and then it gives you a report at the end, and it tells you this all green lights are great. There are some warnings, but we think this configuration is suitable. Check the warnings or basically a red flag that says no go, fix some stuff, rerun validation, and um, you know, then hopefully you'll be fine. But yeah. what this changes is that no longer do you have to go about lists, no longer do you have to worry about anything. As long as it passes cluster validation, from a Microsoft support standpoint, you have a supportable cluster. That means you could technically have, let's say, one server be Dell, one server be HP. As long as the Windows configuration is the same, you're fine. And it, Microsoft doesn't care about different number of processors or different amounts of memory. It's just actual Windows configuration and things like that. So this is a pretty significant change for not only the uh, Windows folks, but for the DBAs as well, because SQL Server built into its setup a check to check that validation was good. And if validation was bad, it will pop up a message saying, basically, you can't continue until you fix your cluster. So that's significant because in the past, there were a lot of folks who implemented a clustered instance of SQL didn't test the underlying cluster that their Windows guys gave them. Tried to fail over somewhere, and you couldn't fail over because of some underlying issue, be it storage, networking, whatever it was. And to fix that, sometimes you had to tear it down to build it right back up. So that meant downtime. Now, most of that stuff has gone away because most of your issues have been resolved up front. So the reliability and ease of deployment of your clusters has gone up significantly since Windows Server 2008. Yep, and so the hardware compatibility list was a big change in 2008. 
I suppose the other one that was, I think, very notable there was the change that for anybody coming from earlier versions, instead of installing into one node and then installing all the other nodes from that, from 2008 we went around to each node individually to install. Right. Um, and, and that's something at first I'll be, uh, I will say that I was critical of. So let's give you a little understanding of why this happened. Um, so in, from SQL Server, to, in SQL Server 2000 and 2005, you basically ran setup, be it for an instance or for patching, like, say, a service pack. It would go out and then patch all your nodes. The problem was in those rare events where something happened on one of the remote nodes and the process didn't complete, you may have been stuck with a broken cluster because you don't know where it failed and how it failed. And getting back from that was never easy or always possible. So to change that, what they've essentially done is it's a node-by-node, instance-by-instance install, meaning you install what's known as a first node install, and that gets your instance up and running in the cluster. And then on your additional nodes, you run an add node process to join that instance to the first node install that you did. So if you've got a four-node cluster and you've got two instances of SQL, that's two first node installs and six add nodes. Now, that seems like a lot of installs, but in essence, it's not. It's two really big ones. The first time you install on the other nodes, if, say, you installed SSMS, it'll install that then. But after that, it's just essentially laying down the binaries for those particular instances on the boxes. So the installs are pretty quick. What that provides you is localized failure. So if the install goes awry on your third node install when you're trying to join into the cluster, that's fine. That's where your failure is. You can isolate it. You can deal with it. Even if you have to reimage the box, if there's nothing else on that box, you're still up and running in production while you're sorting out this other issue versus having it die somewhere on the vine and potentially having to scratch your entire install. So while you lose a little flexibility in terms of just an ease of use of running a single install, you gain a lot of other troubleshooting ability and peace of mind by doing it one by one. Yeah, I gather from talking to the guys on that team, the reliability of installs when they made that change basically went through the roof. Absolutely, and I, I've seen that at customers um, where, <coughs> excuse me, like I said, We've had failures, but we could troubleshoot them and diagnose them with not a lot of muss and fuss because I'm not worried about the other stuff. I'm just worried about what's going on in this particular node. I gather the other thing that's, uh, of course, getting harder is that the security guys are trying to tie things down more and more and more all the time, and it, it actually makes it harder for an install on one box to reach out and do things on the other nodes anyway. So I gather this was also a... Uh, a driving force that was making them realize they just literally had to do it node by node. Maybe. Um, I never heard that from them, but it's certainly a possibility. Mm. I think that may have been anecdotal customer feedback. But yeah, no, I was actually hearing that directly from guys who were writing the code. They, they were telling me the uh, the it is getting harder and harder from one node to sort of reach out and reliably install on another node anyway. Yeah, no, I, I would actually agree with the sentiment. I just never heard that mm. directly from them. Another issue sometimes you had was, for example, even just 
where, where that really came into play actually was actually being able to access the install binaries. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes if you had it on, say, Node 1 and didn't share it properly, when it hit Node 2, it couldn't do the install because it didn't have access to see things. Um, yeah. So this, again, sort of plays to your point. You know, if you do it local, you know, I mean, another yeah, thing... straightforward. Yeah, another significant, actually, thing for me in SQL 2012 is the new um, slipstreaming methods. Yeah. Uh, which, to me... In fact, we should define slipstreaming and uh, and mention that as well. Yeah, so what slipstreaming is, Windows has had it for a while, where basically, if you look at your install media, um, you notice that you can download, let's say, Windows Server 2008 R2 with SP1 integrated in... TechNet MSDN, it's in your volume license, that's slipstreaming, where your major update is included with the package. The, like, uh, and by package, I mean, in this case, DOS. Yeah. SQL Server, prior to um, 2012, introduced a method in, I think it was 2008, where you could basically run a couple of Robocopy commands, create your own batch file, and integrate updates into SQL Server. You could do, say, just a service pack, or you could do a service pack plus CU. Yeah. But you have to do it manually yourself. They didn't ship it that way. And every time, let's say, things change, like they introduced a new CU or a service pack, you have to do it all over again. Not the most ideal of scenarios. I suppose acronym police, I should point out, too. CUs, so cumulative update. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, And that's the release that that SQL Server ships roughly every two months, six weeks. Uh, That is an update to a a supported branch of SQL Server. Yeah, so between service packs. Exactly. Um, And so what they did in 2012 was they simplified the model and basically – it happens in two ways. One, I like. One, I don't like as much. The essential gist of it is that setup is, shall we say, update aware for, they don't call it that, but I think this is the best way to describe it, where if you run setup, by default, it's going to go check to see if there are updates that, um, you know, can be installed. Now, what that means is that setup, by default, is going to go out on the Internet and look. In a mission-critical environment, that's not what I want. So I can control that behavior in a um, line in a command file, or in I can change the default setup to I and I for the install media and say update enabled equals false. But what I can also do is if I just have a single line, uh, it's called update source. And I then say download SQL Server 2012 Service Pack 1, which was released a couple of months ago. Um, we're recording this. It's January 2013. I think it was released in October 2012. Yep. You can then take the executable, the, the downloaded executable, stick it on a folder or a share somewhere. Tell Point update source to it, say, if it's on CSP1. You set update source to CSP1, and then during the install, it will detect that, oh, hey, I see Service Pack 1. I'm going to install this as part of your install. You don't have to unpack anything. You don't have to copy things in and integrate them yourself. 
So what this means is that if you have a generic folder, let's say just called CSPs, if Service Pack 01 goes to Service Pack 2, just swap out the executables. And what it yeah. will do is you can have an, a dynamically updating uh, installation media with the latest updates that you need in a very non-threatening, easy-to-update manner. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite features of 2012, actually. Um, but it's yeah. not something that's ever going to make a marketing slick. And other notable changes in clustering in 2012, I suppose the uh, uh, failure detection changes? Yeah. So the, the, there, are a couple, there are a couple of significant changes. Uh, the first is, in the in the past, there, there's a, a standard mechanism in Windows failover clustering that SQL Server leverages the two processes called is alive and looks live. One is basically where the cluster says, hey, are you there? And the other one's what we call not as lightweight of a check, but something written by the application, in this case SQL Server, that checks to make sure it's, it's up and running. In the past, this has basically been a simple looking at a select add version type of a thing where it's just running a simple query, but it doesn't say anything about the health of the databases or the health of the instance, <coughs> excuse me, other than the fact that it's up and running and it can connect in. Yeah, so, the idea that you can do a select at at version, almost nothing in the server needs to be running before you can do that. But yeah, your user databases might not be available at all. Exactly. And so this has led to people asking, well, can I customize that query? And the answer has been no. In SQL 2012, while you still can't customize the query, what they've essentially done is they have a new stored procedure called SP Server Diagnostics, which you can run um, even if you're not running clustering. But um, this process now runs that stored procedure, and it basically gives you back a score. For all intents and purposes, it says, I'm healthy or I'm not healthy. And based on the failure condition level that's set, and it, it will determine how sensitive it is to that score. And if it detects a problem, it will then, you know, obviously potentially trigger things like a failover. So the intelligence around am I healthy is much better in SQL 2012. And by the way, the availability group feature also takes advantage of this for yeah. its health detection as well. So it's not just failover clustering that takes uses this stuff. It, it's also availability groups. So if your instance is in, the, in an unhealthy state and you have, say, automatic failover set in an availability group, that could happen as a result of this. And another actually significant improvement in uh, SQL Server 2012 failover clustering is the ability to have to have a local TempDB. Yeah. So with TempDB, we've always had to put it on shared storage, but it is SQL Server scratch space. So that's really an expensive use of SAN, especially if you don't have the IOPS to begin with. And I can't, I don't know about you, Greg, but I have a lot of customers who want to use things like Fusion IO or some local, more highly performing solution for things like TempDB that Maybe not be cheap, but it's still cheaper than sand and gives them the IOPS they need. 
Yeah, in fact, it's usually uh, the ones I see locally, it hasn't been the price of the sand storage. It's it's more that they want to chase the performance that they could get from direct attached storage and TempDB. Well, yeah, we're using things things like Fusion Fusion IOs or even just local SSDs or something along those lines. Uh, they're, they're chasing the performance of that rather. N not necessarily that cost is not an issue, but usually TempDB is not that huge. And... Yeah, they they're usually chasing the performance they can get locally. Oh, 100% agree. But really, the bigger issues. Let's say you want to do, say, a multi-site failover cluster spanning subnets where you have to mirror that storage. Mirroring TempDB as well is really expensive. So what they've done in SQL Server 2012 with a clustered instance is you now have the ability to have TempDB actually just be created locally. It's the only database you can do that for. It can't do it for any of the user databases or the system databases. So you can take advantage of these highly performing solutions, and on the other side, when it fails over, it'll just use the same solution there. The only real caveat is that, unfortunately, during the setup in the add node process, it doesn't create the directory structure. So you have to manually create the yeah. directory structure with the right permissions. But outside of that, it's actually a pretty fantastic solution to let you leverage commodity hardware or things like Fusion I.O. to give you that performance boost for 10TB with clustered instances fully supported out of the box. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. As I said, it's it was a high, a very high sort of uh, common requirement. And people were saying, look, 10TB gets rebuilt every time anyway. Why does it have to be on shared storage? Absolutely. Um, you know, and look, this is, I, I think, one of the things, for all its, you know, pluses and minuses, people have their criticisms of Microsoft. Microsoft really does listen. Because a solution like this being officially supported comes directly from customers asking Microsoft for this. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't do this otherwise, I could tell you that, because there are so many people doing this type of solution, it was a no-brainer for them to do it. Yeah. So we've got those. Anything else you think notable in changes in clustering itself um, uh, in SQL Server? Uh, the only other one I would say related to clustering is they have essentially a new throttle where you can speed up. You can essentially tell SQL Server to throttle I.O. to speed up the recovery time in a failover. Yeah. Um, but that's not something I recommend out of the box, but that's brand new in SQL Server 2012 as well. Mm. Um, but that's really about it. I mean, they've pretty much kept clustering the same with these minor improvements in terms of number of improvements, but the improvements they made are actually pretty significant in terms of their impact. Yeah, that's great. And listen, so thanks for that, Alan, but look, where will people come across you or see you in in future? What's what's coming up for you? Uh, let's see. Um, I'm doing some SQL Saturdays here in the states, mm -hmm. um, so I will be in um, actually in Vancouver in Canada. So that's not quite the states, but um, and Mountain yep. View, um, probably the Boston one here locally. Maybe I'll be at TechEd in in uh, May or June here in the states. So, I mean, I'm around. I do webcasts. I can always be reached at my website, httpsqlha.com, or at the blog, is it sqlha.com slash blog. I'm on Twitter as at as sqlha, so I'm not that hard to find around the web. <laughs> Indeed. And, and I like the Twitter avatar. It has a, a nice bass guitar. 
Yeah, it's actually the headstock to to the P base I've owned since about 1988. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today, Alan, and we will talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me, Greg, and uh, uh, good day, everyone.